Morning, gentlemen. Good to see you today. Uh, at the end of uh, last session, I think I left a lot of us in a little bit of a confusion. As <laughs> several of you asked me questions, uh, uh, actually about my, my view of uh, uh, gay rights and what's before the Supreme Court and all that. I think I confused you, and so I'd like to take a few minutes to clarify at least what I think uh, the the Bible says about certain things, and then how we might make some political inferences beyond that. That's where it's a little risky because I think there's room for disagreement. Uh, first of all, I said last week, at least as I remember, I didn't listen to the tape, but I said something like, uh, we need to be sure that we grant civil rights to all the people in our country, regardless of their religious background and certainly regardless of their race and national background, uh, and with respect to their gender, and respect to their sexual orientation. Uh, I think some of you took that to mean that I, I would be in favor of, uh, of uh, supporting gay marriage or promoting gay marriage uh, in our government. And that wouldn't be the case. Uh, the civil rights I'm talking about are the rights to have a job and the, the rights to be protected, to enjoy all of the uh, privileges of the Constitution. That should be for all people. We ought to die for that. That's what we send people to war for is to defend our freedom, and freedom begins internally. Before you're ever attacked on the outside, are you going to give each other freedom? And these are biblical rights, largely, that we grant to one another. So regardless of one's sexual orientation, or in our case, we would even say regardless of one's sexual practice, uh, they should be given civil rights. Now, the question that's before our country right now has to do with whether uh, we should grant marital status uh, to gay as well as uh, heterosexual couples. And the reason I'm opposed to that is because, first of all, I don't think that it's, it's a, a civil right that anyone could be married regardless of to the one to whom they're married. Uh, I don't believe that we should be able to marry uh, uh, minors uh, without parental permission, for example. So you don't just have an unlimited right to marry whomever you want to and to be considered marriage. Also, the, the issues that are at stake have to do with a lot of things, primarily tax advantages. We give tax incentives uh, to our citizens to incentivize certain behaviors. The behaviors that we want to incentivize come right out of Romans 13. We, uh, the, the role of the civil magistrate is to punish evil and to promote good. So we want to incentivize behaviors that promote the general welfare of the state. It's obvious, and it has been proven scientifically, that healthy marriage between a man and a woman, having children and rearing them, is in the interest of the state. So it's in our interest, the, state of the, the interest of the state, to incentivize marriages between male and female. I don't think there's any scientific study that shows that it's in our interest to incentivize Gay marriages. I don't see that it contributes anything to the welfare of the state. Therefore, it is not appropriate for us simply to grant tax advantages to people because they're powerful. Now, the AARP is an example of a PAC that uh, once you get a PAC, it has no brain. I remember when my uncle was giving me sex education, he reminded me a certain part of my body had no brain in it. Uh, and that's a good thing to remember. PACs have no brain either. They're the part of our political body that have no brain. All they know is power. 
So whether it's a, the um, NRA or the AARP or the gay rights group, they're all brainless, just looking for power to promote and bully their way to get all legislation that they want in favor of their particular group. That's the way all PACs function. That's the reason I think we ought to eliminate PACs. So what we're dealing with now is a political interest group that is using bullying techniques to get a, a tax advantages for something that doesn't uh, promote the welfare of the state. However, there are some other civil rights I think we ought to consider. For example, if, if, our, uh, if you're gay and you're in the hospital, uh, you're, uh, you, you don't have a wife, but you have a best friend, and he doesn't have the same privileges of visitation. I think we need to do something about that. In other words, I think there are some issues that affect our gay friends, our gay brothers and sisters, uh, that need to be acknowledged. Now, some, of course, would rail against what I'm saying because they would say, you're granting certain rights and privileges to heterosexual people, and you're not granting the same thing to homosexual people. Well, in that case, I just fall back on biblical ethics. And here, the fact is that the only ones of us who have the right and the responsibility to engage in intimate sexual relationships are those who have a covenant of marriage with a woman. Some of us who are heterosexual are either widowed or we're single for other reasons. We may be divorced. We, don't, we also don't have a right to satisfy our sexual lusts outside of marriage. So whether you're gay or you're heterosexual, uh, you don't have a moral freedom to simply enjoy sexual intimacy at will. You have a civil right, but you don't have a moral right. And this is where the distinction is to be made. So if we promote civil rights for the gay community, it does not mean that we are promoting their practice. We're simply granting them constitutional rights and will be very vigorous to do so. But what they would also understand is that at the same time that we protect their civil rights, we want to inculcate moral rights among them and all the others of our neighbors because we believe that is uh, pleasing to God and also in the interest of the state for us to be a moral state. Our founders said very clearly, you can't keep this government going. Uh, merely by the imposition of law. There has to be a religious instinct in us. There has to be a deeper moral uh, uh, compulsion in us way beyond fear of the civil law. So uh, the teaching of morality, which comes from the teaching of the reality of uh, the very being of God, the person of Christ, and His Lordship, that motivates us deeply. But when it comes to public policy, that's a complex matter. For example, you know, in the founding of our colonies, uh, sodomy was, was considered a, a punishable uh, offense. Well, I personally think that we were right to overturn the sodomy laws because that has to do with individual sexual practice, and I don't know that the state has an interest in that, at least not to, to punish that behavior. At the same time, I don't think that we should incentivize the same behavior that we no longer punish. So I hope you get the point. There's, there's a distinction between how you develop public policy in a secular state and how you develop your own moral ethic. Now, when it comes to the moral ethic, here's the biggest concern, is that churches that claim to be Christian churches are promoting uh, the 
moral equivalence of the gay lifestyle. But ladies and gentlemen, it is not morally equivalent. And all you have to do is look at Leviticus, look at Romans, look at 1 Corinthians, uh, and other places in the Scriptures, and you'll see that homosexual behavior is clearly uh, offensive to the Lord. Homosexual behavior. Now, some will say, how can you say that because we're just born one way or the other? There's a big debate whether uh, homosexual desires are a result of nature or nurture. Those who want to say uh, that it should be morally equivalent will argue that it's all a function of nature and not nurture. I personally think it's both. I do believe there are some folks who seemingly come into this world and they come into this world with a homosexual bias that eventually shows itself as they reach puberty. However, that does not change the moral argument because I know some people who are born into this world angry. But that doesn't give them special permission to exercise their anger. They have to bring, put a lid on it and learn how to control it. Maybe it's more difficult for them than it would be for, for some of you who are just more placid by nature. But we're all responsible for anger management, every one of us, regardless of your nature or your nurture. So it's an irrelevant argument. Some will say, you know, it's just like being gay or hetero. is like being right-handed or left-handed, which is to say there, there's moral equivalence. Well, that's a, a bunch of baloney because the Bible doesn't have anything to say about whether you're right-handed or left-handed. The Bible does have something to say about how you practice your sexuality. Remember, in the Bible, two major functions of your sexuality. Number one, you're to glorify God with your sexuality as with everything else. Secondly, you're to serve your neighbor with your sexuality. And if, if men would get this, it would really change their marital sexual, sex lives. Once you begin that, once you understand that this is not for your pleasure, it's for the pleasure of the one you love. You're supposed to serve people with your sexuality. So in that case, for the Christian, it's no argument at all for me to say, well, you've removed my rights to exercise my sexuality. Where'd that come from? That's a typical Western American, self-centered, individualistic a paradigm for considering sexuality. Sexuality is for the purpose of service. And Jesus gave us the example. He didn't have sexual intimacy either, but he happened to live the most fruitful, effective, productive life in the history of the world in 33 years. So we don't look at our sexuality as though we have a right, moral right, to engage in the sexual relationships. Now, the ones who are most to blame in the entire mess are not the homosexuals, it's the heterosexuals. Because what they have shown is that they believe it's their right to have sex with whomever they want to, whenever they want to, wherever they want to, under any circumstances, regardless of the covenant of marriage. So if there's anybody who needs a defense of marriage act, it's not the homosexual community, it's the heterosexual community. And when they start defending marriage, maybe somebody else will want to defend it too. And most of the evangelical churches are filled with heterosexual people, not homosexual people. We have homosexuals in our church. I'll get to that in a moment. But, but the majority is clearly heterosexual. And I want to tell you something. In my pastoral ministry, I spend very little time correcting homosexuals about their sexual life. I spend a whole lot of time correcting heterosexual men about their sexual lives. And they're the ones who have led us down the tubes. So all the homosexual community actually is doing 
is that they're looking out and watching the heterosexuals and say, we want to do the same thing they do. So when the heterosexuals, who are Christians, get their lives straight and they start to hold each other accountable, I think you'll have a platform to speak from. Right now, we don't have a platform because of our own misbehavior. So, uh, once again, your sexual orientation is not the issue. If you were born with a certain sexual orientation, you're, you're not responsible for how you were born. You're responsible now for what you do with it. So, for example, someone would ask me, would you ordain a homosexual? Of course I would, as long as he's celibate, just like a single heterosexual man or woman. If they are uh, exercising biblical sexual practice, their orientation is not disqualifying at all. So someone can join your church or serve in your church in any capacity as long as they adopt the biblical sexual ethic. The Apostle Paul was single. We're not given anything about his sexual orientation. It's basically irrelevant. What's relevant is that he was a celibate man. He was chaste, and he served other people with his sexuality, not himself. So we invite the entire world with the full scale of sexual orientation to come to Christ and to come and let him heal us. And all of us need healing. Heteros and homosexuals need healing. And then we pledge ourselves to a sexual ethic. And then we live in community and serve each other. That's the way it's done. Now, in the civil realm, that's more complex because you're making legislation in a mixed group. And uh, there are, uh, if, you, if you're interested in some bibliographic references about how a Christian thinks about public policy, email me and I'll give you two or three biblical or rather bibliographic references that I think are helpful about the development of public policy. There are all kinds of complications there. And you can't, what the Christian sometimes tries to do that I think is inappropriate, you can't just take Bible chapter and verse and legislate that. For example, the Bible says that you, you shouldn't be unkind to each other. So you can throw somebody in prison for being unkind. I mean, you can see. It's complicated. So something can be right, but not necessarily good law. There are many components that make up good law. And so, for example, I think we would say in the abortion issue, certainly we would like to see a cessation of elective abortions. But are you going to also uh, exclude a, a abortion in the case of rape? Probably not. Probably you'll continue to allow that, even though... If it happened in your family, you might have second thoughts about that. You might, might decide not to have an abortion because that's a human being. You might decide that, but you probably wouldn't legislate it. Just think about that. So sometimes you may have something that's a matter of conscience for you personally, but it doesn't necessarily make good legislation. And that, that's where Christians need to be more thoughtful, and more nuanced in the way they take biblical truth and move it into the public arena. Uh, because we want to honor our neighbor and not impose specifically religious ethical in, uh, injunctions upon him. We want to impose those things which promote the general welfare. That's the way our forefathers put it in our Constitution, and I think they were correct on that. Now, I have probably confused some of you more than I had confused you before. And if so, please send me some emails. Um, I think it's time to look at the Bible now. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Um, I hope that's helpful. You know, I, I think 
another thing I would say is let's be sure not to get overly exercised. We need to, we need to commit ourselves to the political arena. We need to express ourselves. And let me just say, uh, if I look back on uh, these first weeks of our president's administration, the thing that caused me the most grief, by the way, let me just say, if you didn't hear his speech in Israel last week, and I believe it was to youth in Jerusalem, it was a very, very fine presentation. And it's all in the political arena, but a very fine presentation uh, to all the world about the relationship between the U.S. and Israel. Uh, I will make one comment about it here in a little bit, but I thought it was a, just one of his finest speeches. Uh, one of his speeches that I thought was also a fine speech with one exception was his second inaugural address. But in that second inaugural address, he made the equivalence between gay rights and uh, civil rights for all races. That to me is a horrible confusion. Uh, you know, to take something as precious to us as our civil rights heritage and legacy in this country and how folks fought and died for that. And it was on clear biblical principles of uh, civility. And to use that as manipulation for gay rights to me is just a, a, an abomination as one who is pro-civil rights. It's a misuse of the whole biblical premise that Dr. King and others spoke from when he was promoting civil rights. So I think uh, there's an offense there. And furthermore, this was even more offensive, uh, when Reverend Louis Giglio was initially invited to give the inaugural prayer, and someone in the gay community discovered that 20 years ago he preached a sermon that probably contained pretty much what I just said to you. That that sermon, I've listened to the sermon, and it wasn't exactly what I said, but it was in that general neighborhood, just a biblical approach to sexuality, and includes some comments about uh, the, the gay lifestyle. That was preached 20 years ago. When the gay community found it, they, they complained, and Obama disinvited Louis Giglio to give the inaugural uh, prayer. I don't think I've ever written a president before, and I know it made no difference whatsoever, but I couldn't contain myself. And I wrote him to ask him to apologize to the nation, not because he is pro-gay uh, rights in a, a way beyond biblical truth, in my opinion. And I told him, I said, you've made that really clear. You were elected on that basis. Fair enough. The majority of the country voted for you, and you were clear about what you believe. And you believe in the moral equivalence of gay sex and heterosexual sex. Fine, that's your opinion. However, when you exclude those from participation in your administration because they have a different moral view on this issue, now you have violated what we all hold dear, and that is the inclusion of everybody in the community. And so right now what you find is strong bullying going on where you are marginalized, shamed, excluded, if you hold to a biblical view of sexuality and, and expect to impose any of those views, like I just did, in the civil arena. That is, to withhold incentivizing tax advantages because it promotes nothing for the general welfare. You will be scorned for that kind of behavior. So right now there's a lot of bullying going on. And I just say to you gentlemen, at the same time that you're gracious and as inclusive as possible and eminently generous, you should also be firm on what is right and what is wrong and let the scorn come. Then you're, in that case, you're suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ and just let it go. But don't get overly exercised. Our hope is not in 
the perpetual uh, uh, regency of the United States of America uh, as a world power. That's not where our hope is. Our hope is in what we're going to talk about, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our hope is. And you just keep your eyes focused on his kingdom, advancing his cause, and that we serve him in the state and in the home and in the church, everywhere we go. And we're not responsible for the outcome. We're simply responsible for our faithfulness with zeal. Uh, and then we can leave the outcome with him. Well, let's look at chapter 24. And here we have the famous Olivet Discourse. Last time we looked at the verse, first 14 verses where Jesus was describing the current conditions of, the, of this age in which we live. And he says, wars and rumors of wars will come. Earthquakes will come. Don't think that this means that the end has come. No, the end has not yet come. He says, these are things that are going to be happening in the, in the new age that we're living in now. So we draw no inferences from the rapid, rapid increase of, of earthquakes or volcanoes or, any, or hurricanes or tornadoes. That doesn't tell us anything about the coming or whether uh, there are more wars than there ever were before or the 20th century being the bloodiest century in the history of the world. None of those things tell us that the end is near, even though people will try to draw inferences from it. Jesus says not to. So that should be enough for us. Then when we come to verse 15, uh, he is here, as we're going to see, speaking about some historical event. It seems clearly to be the event that took place around 70 A.D. with the fall of Jerusalem. And we'll try to uh, demonstrate why that is in just a moment. But let's look at what he's saying here. And here he's talking about what we call the abomination of desolation that we believe occurred uh, right during that time of the, of the fall of Jerusalem. He's talking about the great tribulation that we often talk about. What is that? Well, let's, let's look and see uh, what... Uh, uh, he says about it. Verse 15, chapter 24. So, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Okay. What we want to see, first of all, in verses 15 through 21, these seven verses, is that God will severely judge His Old Testament church. God will severely judge His Old Testament church. Now, why do I say Old Testament church? Because it seems clearly here that, that Jesus is speaking about the fall of Jerusalem. Leave your fingers there at Matthew 24. And turn over to Luke chapter 21, 
and this will be on page 2003. And you'll notice that he goes in somewhat the same order. But when he comes, when Luke has Jesus speaking about this part, so when you see the abomination of desolation, look how he puts it in Luke 21, 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and so on. So you see Luke records Jesus as saying, and of course all the sermons of Jesus are extracts. They're, they're not the full comprehensive, it's not every word that he said. As John tells us, if we had every word he said, the, the whole world would not be big, big, enough, big enough to hold all the books if we recorded everything. So everybody's selecting. So Luke recalls that Jesus also said when the armies surround Jerusalem. Well, that's clearly 70 A.D. when the Roman armies surrounded Jerusalem. And so we're talking about the Old Testament church. It will be judged. And why was it judged? Well, all you have to do is look back at Matthew 23. And here you see the seven woes given to the scribes and Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And they were illustrating the hypocrisy of the entire church. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean every single individual. But Judaism as a whole came under the judgment of God because they had exchanged uh, the glory of God for the glory of the temple and the security of being in his, living in His Spirit for living on His land. And they were being presumptuous with God. And they were taking the law and trying to justify themselves by it rather than using it as a way of drawing near to the Lord and serving their neighbor. So the hypocrisy had filled the church and God was coming now to judge the church. He was surrounding Jerusalem and destroyed it. There are many implications of this. Basically, what happened on that occasion in 70 AD was that Judaism as a religion was finally condemned. Judaism finds its full flower or the Old Testament religion finds its full flower in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that are in the Old Testament. Everything Jesus said, Luke 24, everything in the Old Testament speaks of Him, points to Him. So if everything in the Scriptures point to Christ and you reject Christ, guess what you just rejected? The Bible and all that goes with it. So if you are in Judaism and you're rejecting Christ, you're rejecting the Old Testament because the whole Old Testament points to Christ. This is what pe many people miss. They think that, well, there's some people who, you know, they follow the ways of the Old Testament. They believe in the same God we do because the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. So if you're in a religion that believes the Old Testament, well, we've got the same God. You don't have the same God if you distort the Old Testament and make it out to be some other God. The God of the Old Testament is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is also the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you cut off Christ, you cut off Jehovah, because Christ is Jehovah incarnate. So basically what happened at 70 AD was a final condemnation of Judaism apart from Christ. In other words, to use language of Romans 11, all of that was chopped off. Remember Paul talks about an olive tree? And when God's judgment comes, the branches are cut off who reject Messiah. They're cut off. Some of you wild Gentiles, Paul says, were grafted into that olive tree. So, okay, 
your, your, wild, your, your wild trees, but you got grafted into the, to the olive tree. So now you belong to the olive tree. And then Paul says to you, remember, now don't you Gentiles get up on your high horse because if he can graft you wild Gentiles in, he can also graft, regraft in the natural branches. How do they get regrafted back in? Through faith in Christ. So that a way that a Jew or a Gentile inherits eternal life is to be grafted into the one people of God in Christ. So what happened at 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, the city was destroyed, Judaism was destroyed as a viable religion. The temple's gone. There are no more sacrifices. There's nothing more there. They're in dispersion all over the world as an ethnic people. And they're meant to be evangelized by us to come back into the church of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham. So Paul says that when you believe in Christ, you are a child of Abraham. So all, all of the promises that were given to Abraham in all of the Old Testament devolve upon all of the believers in Jesus Christ, for we're the children of Abraham. So you see what happens then. Here, what Jesus is predicting is the final condemnation predicted by all the prophets against those who reject God and re in this case reject His Son, the Messiah. So that's what's happening here at the very beginning of verse 15. The abomination of desolation. Of course, uh, those uh, who lived in the time of the Maccabees in the 2nd century B.C. believed that they had the abomination of desolation and they did in a certain sense because you remember the Greeks came into the temple started sacrificing pigs in the, in the temple and set up pagan worship in the temple. That was the abomination that desolates. And then, of course, Judas Maccabeus and the entire Maccabee family came in and rescued the Jews from the tyranny of the Greeks and reestablished temple worship. And that was considered the abomination of desolation back in Daniel. But here you have this abomination of desolation when the Romans came in and they too set up their idols, a few nice little statues uh, in the temple precinct. And once again, it was the abomination of desolation. And you see that when God judges the Old Testament church, and by the way, folks, He's going to judge the New Testament church too. You remember in 1 Peter 4, 17? 1 Peter 4, 17, Peter says, uh, judgment uh, will begin with the household of God. When Christ comes back, who's judged first? Us. And if we've been hypocritical, if we've just been going through the motions, if we don't have a saving relationship with Christ, if we've not really trusted Him, we're just in the church because Grandma was there or Daddy brought us to church or we like the people there or some other external reason where we're just hypocrites just like they were in Jesus' time, we too will be judged. And you can see that what happens is it will be accompanied by great wickedness. In verse 15, with the abomination of desolation, this judgment will be accompanied by great wickedness. And this was true always, that when God judged His people back in the 6th century B.C., He sent wicked Babylonians to do it. When the northern kingdom was judged in the uh, 7th century, 8th century B.C., the wicked Assyrians, violent Assyrians, were appointed by God to do it. So there, when His judgment comes, there's often great wickedness. Now, secondly, verses 16 through 20, notice that it will require great alertness. He says, when this happens, the abomination of desolation, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and so on. And uh, woe for those who are pregnant. 
nursing infants. I pray that it doesn't happen on a Sabbath because of the Sabbath day's journey. Because you're going to need to travel more than a Sabbath day's journey. And he's basically saying it's going to be very urgent. It's going to come upon you rapidly. Be ready to move. Now what's interesting is that when the Romans came to quell the rebellion, and that's what it was, the Jews were rebelling against Roman authority, won't go into all the details, but the Romans began to come through Galilee and on down to Jerusalem to try to, try to quell this rebellion. And there were blood and guts everywhere. But when they get to Jerusalem, they besiege it for months. And they build their own wall around the wall of Jerusalem. And anybody who comes out of Jerusalem gets crucified, literally. And so the people in Jerusalem were starving to death. And Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, tells us, although he, he, became, he got in cahoots with the Romans, so his history may be a little bit biased, but he says that in Jerusalem there were over one million people. Can you imagine that? In old Jerusalem, first century, there were one million people being besieged. And basically, folks, most of those were put to death or starved to death. It was absolutely gruesome. Jesus said right here, when the abomination of desolation is set up, flee to the mountains. Get out of there. Now, where, what happened to the Christians? Because there were some Christians in Jerusalem too. Josephus tells us the Christians fled and went to a place called Pella over in Jordan. And there established a Christian community. Why did they do that? Because of this text. They'd already been told, this is going to happen. And when it does, flee to the mountains. And it turns out, at least from best we can gather from history, the Christians actually took the words of Jesus and put them into effect. Well, we're told too, aren't we? We've already seen some texts where we've been told to flee from evil. Same thing. When you see evil coming, get out of there. Now, remember, we don't ever flee from Satan. We stand up against Satan and we fight him with the word of God. But we flee from evil. So when you're in an evil circumstance, get out of there. Remember what we're told. And you're often spared from all kinds of misery and sorrow uh, when you just learn how to flee, and they did. On the other hand, some of you who've been to Israel know that the number one tourist attraction, guess what that would be? It's not the temple. Masada. Masada is the number one tourist attraction. Now, Masada is a high plateau south of Jerusalem uh, that overlooks the Dead Sea. And it was a fortress of Herod the Great and even before Herod the Great. But in, in the fourth decade B.C., Herod the Great built his fortress up there. Later, the Jews took it uh, from Herod the Great. And the so-called Sakari, the, the real right-wing zealots who were fighting the Romans, many of them retreated to Masada during this time. And they, they had, <laughs> if you go to Masada, you'll be amazed at the self-contained community they were able to have there. And they had a little over 900 people on Masada, men, women, and children. And they defended themselves. They had high walls. It was 1,300 feet down this way off that plateau, only 300 feet down this way. And, of course, the Romans eventually, you know, built a ramp 350 feet high. And, uh, you know, they, they rammed their way into Masada. And when they got there, they found that all but a very few had committed suicide. Well, actually, they had killed each other because suicide is against Jewish law. So they did it systematically. They killed each other until one guy was left. 
but I think there were, there were maybe a score of people out of the 900. Uh, so they defended themselves to the very end. So you can see the destruction that Jesus is talking about here in Jerusalem and even up at Masada. By the way, uh, Moshe Dayan, who, who is, you know, the, who is the, the secretary of the Israel Defense Forces uh, years ago, he began a tradition that they keep even today. So everyone who's, uh, who vows to enter the service in Israel, they hike up to Masada at night. And with torch, torches burning, they take their vows to enter the Israel uh, Defense Forces. And the, what they say is, uh, Masada shall never happen again. That's the vow they take in the Israel Defense Forces. So it's, it's a huge moment in Israel history. But what Jesus is saying, it's a huge moment of destruction and judgment uh, because it will come with great rapidity. We need to be alert for it. And if you simply try to defend yourself, you're going to be destroyed uh, without obeying Christ. Verse 21 teaches us that it's going to bring great suffering. Then there will be a great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. This is very much the language of Daniel, just like the language of the, great, of the abomination of desolation and the language of son of man that comes up later, all coming from Daniel. And you'll see that Daniel speaks of great tribulation. Revelation 7 through 19, as we studied some years ago, is really about the tribulation that comes upon the church in this age. And so we're really all in the great tribulation. There's great turmoil going on in the world because we're in the already and the not yet. We're already in Christ. We're already promised eternal life. We're already in Him. We already are secured in Him, but not yet delivered in the new heavens and the new earth. And there's a great conflict. All you have to do is read the book of Revelation. You see the great chaos and conflict that the reign of righteousness through Christ brings in a world that's, that's been devastated and that is broken and sinful and adulterous. So we're living in the midst of this conflict. There's a great tribulation. And here you see this. He says that, that during this time that is being discussed, there will be a great tribulation. But what the scriptures teach us really is we're in tribulation too. And we must learn how to deal with it. How do you deal with it? You deal with it by simply being faithful to the Lord no matter what your circumstances. Some people will be honest until they're about ready to go bankrupt. Some people will be faithful in their marriage until the most beautiful woman they ever saw in their life offers to go to bed with him. Some people will tell the truth until they're about to be embarrassed at a party. We often will do what we need to do to obey Christ until the tribulation comes. Here's what you do in the tribulation. This is your moment, guys. This is your big moment to show who your Lord is, is when the tough times come. That's when your moral commitments and especially your personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ comes out in spades. So, gentlemen, of all moments, be ready for the great tribulation. Whatever realm of life we're talking about, that's when you get to display your loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 22, let's look secondly at this. First of all, we've seen that God will severely judge His Old Testament church. And, of course, by inference and by revelation, He's going to judge His New Testament church too. And you can see it in Revelation. You know, you, you've become lukewarm. You know, I'm about ready to spew you out of my mouth. So churches have been judged also. Visible churches are judged that go hypocritical. 
visible lives that proclaim Christ as Lord but are hypocritical or ultimately judged. It's what's in our heart. It's whether we really have a relationship with Him. But secondly, we see that God will graciously spare His elect remnant. And you see the language here on more than one occasion. If those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. It's kind of like the wheat and the tares. You don't, you don't pull the tares out because you're going to destroy the wheat. You let them grow together and you have the harvest at the end. At the same time, be assured of this. No tribulation is going to come on this earth that will uh, jeopardize the eternal relationship between His elect people and Himself. So every tribulation that comes to you will never be more than you can bear. It will always be ultimately for your good. And, and I cite the verse here, Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for good. For those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All of your tribulations work for your good. God has designed them that way. And you can see here in this text, even in the destruction of Jerusalem, the days were cut short for the sake of the elect. And you see the, the reference to the elect later on. If he says that... They would lead, these false Christs would lead everybody astray, if possible, even the elect. But it's not possible. Because the elect have been given the Spirit of Christ, have been given the Word of Christ, and we are assured in Him. So He will preserve us and keep us to the very end. I know this is hard to understand. Why does He even have an elect? Well, the reason He has an elect is because if He didn't, nobody would be saved. One of the distinctives of biblical Religion is not just our view of God, but our view of man. Man is naturally fallen. He is naturally inclined to evil. It's only by God's supernatural redemptive grace that He moves us toward Himself and toward righteousness. It's a work of God for that to be done. So if there were no elect, there would be no saved. Because nobody on their own is going to surrender their life to Christ confess their sins, and trust in His miraculous resurrection. No one's going to do that apart from a miracle. But God does work miracles for His elect. He enables them to see. He leads them to Himself. There's not one of you here who trusts in Christ that has not been the object of His peculiar favor, who has not been treated by Him as His Son, who has not been shown by Him that He loves you and has a plan for your life. There's not a person here who could possibly have trusted in Christ who's not the object of his special affection. He has been dealing with you personally, and that's the reason that you're in him at all. Of course, you didn't know that until you came to Christ and started studying his word. You didn't know. You thought that you were the one who was clever enough to trust in Christ. You were the one who thought you were, you were good-natured enough to, to adopt his way of life. No, it was God himself who had elected you from all eternity and who had been pursuing you uh, through all of time. And you see many references there that I've listed that have to do with God's predestination, His election of His people. And of course, that's the only way we can be absolutely assured that nothing will separate us from the love of God. Because as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, what He has begun, He will bring to completion. God composes no unfinished symphonies. He doesn't begin something and then drop it halfway off. He brings it to full completion. So if He's given you life in Christ, He will bring that all the way to the end. That's called salvation. 
Now, thirdly and lastly, if we look in verses 23 through 28, we see that God will clearly reveal His coming King. So, He first of all teaches about judgment. He teaches about the elect. And now He's teaching about the coming King. We'll look at this more next time as Jesus goes into detail about it. But first of all, recognize this. Many will try to deceive you. There will be many false kings that come to you, many false Christs, many false prophets. Now you see this clearly. Uh, when things get tough, people will assert themselves, put themselves forward as your great Savior. What happened to Germany between World War I and World War II? They had a great depression just like we had. People were not in, in work. Germany had been humiliated through World War I. And so what happens? Hitler arises. Wonderful opportunity for a false Messiah to arise when the people are discouraged. So when your tribulations come, you very quickly look for something to solve it. A strong military. A strong economy. A strong educational pedigree. Something that will give you a defense in the midst of chaos rather than looking to the Lord. Many will come to you, especially during difficult times, promising all manner of things. There are many false Christs, many false prophets. I was just on the airplane the other day uh, coming from Detroit, and uh, the woman next to me, uh, as we were talking, she told me she was uh, LDS, Latter-day Saints, Mormon. And... Uh, so we, we talked about things, and she said, well, you know, one of the differences between us is that you believe in a trinity. That is, that, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are all uh, persons of the deity. Uh, we believe in their personhood, but we don't believe that anyone but just the Father is God himself. She didn't say this, but they also believe that the Father used to be a human being, and because he lived in such a wonderful life, he became God, and you can become God too. She didn't tell me that, but she told me about her view of the trinity. So I said to her, well, you know, that, that is a, a difference. And I said, you know, it's a really important one. You ought to think about it. I said, I've thought about the Trinity a lot. And, you know, if Christ is the second person of the Trinity, I certainly want to give him credit for that. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be taking away from Christ something that really belongs to him. Same thing with the Holy Spirit. And I said to her, you know, something else that I've, I've contemplated about the Trinity, that if Christ is not God and he died on the cross, for whom could he die? If he lived a perfect life, he wouldn't have to die for himself because no judgment would fall on him because he's, he's innocent. But if he's only a human being, he can only die for one other person, right? One human being die in the place of another human being. So I'm cooked because I know he didn't pick me over Joseph and Moses and all David and all the rest of them. But if Christ is God, when he lays his life down, it has infinite value and he can substitute for an infinite number of people. I said, that for me is safe. Because even if I'm at the end of the line, which I'm quite sure I am, uh, I'm, I'm in, that, in that host of people for whom he died. And he can do that because he is God incarnate. And I said to her, you know, there's another thing. I thought about the Holy Spirit. That if the Holy Spirit is not God, how can I be absolutely sure that I have fellowship with God? But if the Holy Spirit be God himself, taking up residence in me. I have the life of God living in the soul of man. This is a miracle. And I know that I belong to God because God himself has taken up residence inside of my heart. I said, you know, you really ought to think about that. She said, I don't think about that. <laughs> you really ought to because Joseph Smith was a false, a false prophet. Uh, 
I did not say that to her. But he was. He was, and there are many others who come up with crazy ideas. I mean, if you look at some of the, the, book, some of the things in the Book of Mormon, there's some crazy ideas there. Uh, but he was a false prophet and leading people away from the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then B, notice that his coming will be evident to all. And this is a great comfort to us. You know, uh, so often we've been trained to look for this sign or that sign or when's he coming or, uh, you know, are people going to be raptured and I'll be left behind? You know, or uh, will I be ready for him? Let me tell you something. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's how you know that Jesus has come. Lightning will light the sky all the way from the east to the west. You will have no mistaking that this is the Son of Man. He will make His visage completely evident to all of humanity. All, and as the Bible says, all flesh shall see it together. So you can wait patiently for that day and not worry about whether you're going to miss it. <laughs> you're not going to miss it. What you need to do is to do what Peter said we should do, knowing that that great day of final judgment is coming. And that he says, so what sort of lives ought we to live? And just take a look at 2 Peter 3 and see what sort of lives ought we to live. We ought to be living lives of patient expectation, living lives of conformity to the life of Christ, living lives of trust and hope in Him, not putting our hope in things or in our reputations or our ambitions or our sexual pleasures, putting our hope and our trust and our faith in Him and patiently waiting for Him. And if we're waiting for Him, that is going to draw us through this life in a way that we'll live a life that pleases the Lord. You're not going to be drawn off to the right or to the left to do immoral things because you're waiting for Him. You're in love with Him. You know He's coming. You don't want to grieve Him in any way. So your whole life is lived in expectant uh, waiting for him. I remember reading the, uh, what he called just simply the resolutions by Jonathan Edwards when he was 18 years old. He wrote a series of resolutions about his life. And one of them was to live today as though Jesus were coming back today. That's the way the Christian lives. Live today in the light of his imminent return and the judgment that's coming upon all wickedness and the saving that's coming for all the elect. Wait on Him patiently with a smile in your heart, but with determination in your life that you're going to follow Him in every way. Let us pray. Father, thank You for revealing to us the grand scope of history, that just as it was begun with a word from Your mouth and by fiat, you simply spoke and it came to be so shall it also be concluded by divine fiat. You shall simply command, and with the voice of the archangel and the command of God, the Son of Man shall return and conclude all things. Lord, help us to live our lives in light of this great promise and the great warning. And help us, O Lord, to believe that which is beyond our current experience, but help us to remember that you are the God of all 
And just as creation is beyond our imagination, so also will be the consummation of all things. Thank you for preparing for us a place, preparing for us the new heavens and the new earth where we shall dwell in righteousness and peace. Enable us, Lord, to live lives today as though we believe it, for we do believe it, and thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.